Uh, so my name is Rod, and um, we are currently in the middle of a, a series on spirituality. Um, I'm the uh, public holiday weekend speaker. I'm not trusted with a full complement of people. <laughs> I am feeling the love, though. There are more people here than there were at 10.30, so that's good. Can we have the thingy up? Okay. Um, to begin with, I just want, um, you don't have to, uh, in fact, I don't want you to say what your answer to this question is, but I want you to have a look at the question up on the screen and think about, um, try not to overthink it, just what immediately would come to mind as your answer to this question. What is the most important thing for your existence and well-being? And what I'd like you to think about is um, who or what featured in your answer to that question? Um, did God feature in your answer to that question? Did other people feature in your answer to that question? And um, interestingly, did you yourself feature in your answer to that question? I'm just going to... One of, we've been... Um, there, several books that we're focusing on in this series um, and one of them is the um, unfortunately titled The Gift of Being Yourself. <laughs> but despite the title it's actually quite good and um, I just want to read a couple of paragraphs from this. Um, what would you identify as the most important thing for your existence and well-being? Many Christians I know would answer this with two words, finding God. Others might use the language of knowing, loving and serving God. Some would include the church or relationships with other people in their answer. However they would, however they would express it, I suspect that most Christians would say something about God but would not make any reference to self. To suggest that knowing God plays an important role in Christian spirituality will not surprise anyone. To suggest that knowing self plays an equally important role will set off warning bells for many people, being perhaps just the sort of thing you might expect from an author who is a psychologist, not a theologian. So today, um, in a way, to clear the way for, for the weeks that follow, I want to address this idea of um, warning, warning bells, any warning bells that might have been going off in people's heads in the last few weeks with uh, all this talk of self. <clears throat> uh, I'm guessing that many of you, like me, perhaps grew up in churches where the self and our interior lives were ignored. Uh, for some of you, discussion of the self may have been actively discouraged as a dangerous distraction from loving and obeying God and loving and serving others. And uh, this discouragement was reinforced by um, little sayings like, more of God, less of me. Um, dying to self. Uh, God first, others second, self last. And I think a lot of Bible passages were also used uh, to reinforce a, um, a commitment, I guess, to almost ignoring or neglecting the self. 
uh, like Mark 8, 34, if anyone wishes to come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Galatians 2, 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Uh, John 12, 25, he who loves his life loses it and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to the life eternal. So today I want to, uh, I guess, address this, um, a discom- any discomfort or any warning bells that people have about uh, an explicit focus on the self and an explicit focus on the need to know the self and explore how we can reconcile that with uh, these scriptures that I've just read, scriptures that talk of self-denial, scriptures that talk of Christ living instead of us. Um, And I think part of it comes from looking at those passages with a little bit more context. Uh, For example, going back to those Mark Mark 8. um, If anyone wishes to come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Paul's passage in Galatians 2, I think, is very intriguing because it's quite paradoxical. Galatians 2, 19, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. There are other passages too that perhaps we need to think of to give these passages context, like 1 Corinthians 15, um, where Paul talks about the resurrection of the dead. A perishable body is sown and an imperishable body is raised. A body is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. What is clear in these passages is that we are talking about two different kinds of existence. That is clear. There is an existence that you have before you encounter God, and there is an existence that you have after you encounter God. But the real question is, what what exactly is the character of that new existence? When we encounter God, when we are filled with God, what is the character of that new existence? And this was really brought home to me a number of years ago when I, I was um, listening to a Scottish theologian called Jeremy Begbie. And he talked about the metaphors that we bring to our reading of Scripture and our metaphors that we bring to the way that we understand the relationship of God to self. And he said that he he feels like for most of us and for much of the recent history of the church, the metaphor has been spatial. So, for example, this is God and this is me. And so 
if I am to be filled with God, what has to happen? What has to happen to this if it's going to be filled with that? Mm. Or you can drink it if you've got a cold. So there's an either-or, an either-or understanding of the relationship of self to God. Either God inhabits me or I inhabit me. Um, and it, it's intrinsic in, in this notion of more of God, less of me, right? that, it, that it has to be either-or. But Jeremy Begbie's suggestion is that perhaps more fruitful and more true to, to Scripture is using a metaphor from music. And he, he talks about two musical notes. So if I play one note, if I play C on its own, it has certain qualities and characteristics and tones. If I play G on its own, it has certain qualities and characteristics and tones. But if I play them together, they don't interfere with each other in any way. In fact, when two notes are played together, they bring out aspects of the other note that are not there when the note is played individually. They bring out tones, frequencies, harmonics that are not there in the absence of the other. And when I heard that, when I heard that idea, when I heard this notion that being filled with the Holy Spirit is Pentecost, you know, being filled with the Holy Spirit, being filled with God, dying to self and being filled with God, didn't need to be, we didn't need to read those passage, passages in an either-or way, but that we could read them in a both-and way, uh, that by being filled with God, I actually become bigger, more distinctly myself. I'm not emptied out in a sense of ignoring self, in a sense of um, neglecting self, um, but that my understanding of self is transformed in a way that creates something bigger, something more distinct. It suggests an understanding of, of the relationship between self and God as more of God, more of me, rather than less of me. In Mark 10, 29 to 30, Jesus, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that they will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecution and in the age to come, eternal life. Does anyone have any thoughts or questions? I know it's, it's, a big <laughs> it's a big idea. And when you think about the passages that I quoted before, um, there are strong words about 
you know, hating your life, strong words about denying self. But does that, I guess my question is, is that metaphor, does that idea of more of God, more of me, does it ring true? Does it ring true to your experience? Um, and what perhaps are the implications of that? Sorry, I'm, I'm high on pseudoephedrine, so if I'm not making any sense, that's why. Um, I think it affirms the dignity that we have as individuals with free will and as free agents in the universe. And if Jesus came and died for us, like, why bother if we weren't people of worth with that sense of, of integrity and dignity ourselves? So I think it affirms and elevates that dignity of us as as free agents even though compared to god we're much smaller in some ways but you know he made us a little lower than the angels i suppose i sort of think of it as being like more of god and less of the crap that stops me from being who god intends me to be and created me to be so it's almost like a not a not a less of me, but less of the things that I've accumulated over the years that inhibit me from being, you know, that person of childlike faith and adoration for God. Yeah, I certainly don't think that this metaphor implies that there's no need for renouncing things, that there's no need to l- for letting things go. Um, the point is that the letting go is for the grabbing hold of the greater... Good. I'm going to read um, a little bit more of that passage because I think it's very helpful. An understanding of the interdependence of knowing self and God has held a lasting and respected place in Christian theology. Thomas Akempis argued that a humble self-knowledge is a surer way to God than a search after deep learning. And Augustine's prayer was, Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know Thee. These are but a small sample of the vast number of theologians who have held this position. Christian spirituality involves a transformation of the self that occurs only when God and self are both deeply known. Both, therefore, have an important place in Christian spirituality. There is no deep knowing of God without a deep knowing of self and no deep knowing of self without a deep knowing of God. John Calvin wrote, Nearly the whole of sacred doctrine consists in these two parts, knowledge of God and of ourselves. Though there has never been any serious theological quarrel with, ancient Christian un- with this ancient Christian understanding, it has been largely forgotten by the contemporary church. We have focused on knowing God and tend- tended to ignore knowing ourselves. The consequences have often been grievous, Marriages betrayed, families destroyed, ministries shipwrecked, and endless numbers of people damaged. Leaving the self out of Christian spirituality results in a spirituality that is not well grounded in experience, is therefore not well grounded in reality. Focusing on God while failing to know ourselves deeply may produce an external form of piety, but it will always leave a gap between appearance and reality. I think also that this both and, the both and notion is 
quintessentially Christian. If you think of the incarnation, um, is Christ God or human? Both. If you think of the Trinity, is God three or is God one? God is both. Is there unity in God or or distinction? There is both. And when I am filled with the Spirit of God, do I become and become united with God? Do I become united with Him or do I remain distinct? Both. To make this personal, um, and hopefully this will connect with some of you, because I, I suspect that some of you are like me in, in terms of your spirituality. I want to read a passage from The Holy Longing, which is uh, Shane's favourite book of the moment, and which is another one that we're focusing on in, in this series. Nearly 20 years ago, Swiss analyst Alice Miller wrote a short essay that made a huge impact, the drama of the gifted child. For Miller, the gifted child is not the child with the extraordinary intelligence quotient, Einstein's kid. Rather, the gifted child is the person who, from the womb onward, is extraordinarily sensitive. The person who picks up, internalizes, and lives out the expectations of others. The gifted child is the pleaser, the person who does not want to disappoint others. But, as Miller goes on to show, the, person, the persons who sacrifice themselves for others because they are afraid to disappoint eventually end up in midlife bitter about it, feeling victimised, angry that they have always had to sacrifice their personal need to others', others wishes. The gifted child ends up becoming the embittered adult. Selflessness can just as easily lead to anger as to joy. And this was definitely the result for me, of being um, that kind of person growing up in an environment which encourages, encouraged the neglect of self, which, encouraged, which discouraged any checking in with self, which discouraged any checking in with the emotional effect of what I was doing. It created that external spirituality where as long as you were seen to be doing the right thing, it didn't really matter what was going on internally um, and I think, it d- I think it does relate exactly to the way that we read scripture, to the way that we understand that relationship of God to self. Yeah, Ronnie. Um, I think that a lot of it comes down to your motivation and the motivation needs to be love and it, when you put the first uh, slide up there and said, what can you live without? Or what, what, what was the... Yeah. Um, I was reminded of the quote from um, Moulin Rouge, which says, the greatest thing in all the world is to love and be loved in return. And it didn't really have me or God, although God is love. But to me, that's it. Like, being selfless, if you're being selfless to um, to make yourself look good or whatever, or because there's some law about it, it's always going to be empty. But when you do something that's selfless, because you love someone, you're just wanting to give, you actually get a lot out of it. It's not, you know, it's your motivation and the love and the reason why you're doing something and the reason why you're being selfless, I think, has a greater impact on the final result and how you feel about yourself. Um, 
and how you feel about other people and how you relate to God and others as well, if that makes sense. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that, in a, in a sense, that is exactly the point. But I think if you grow up in a church community which doesn't... Um, well, where, where there's perhaps talk of your motivation and the talk, talk of, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, you should be, you know... It, your life should be characterized by joy and peace and patience and all of these things, but where there is no real training in, you're, you're never trained, you're never encouraged to, um, to know yourself internally, to know what is really motivating you. And I think that the self can be quite, um, or I know for, my, for myself, it took me about 30 years to really disentangle what was going on for me internally because I was never encouraged to go um, yeah, to really know what my motiv- motivations were. Um, of course, of course, I was told that you, you know, you love out of the right motivation, you love because God has loved you. But um, I think for many of us, uh, without being given tools, without being encouraged to know, know ourselves and without being given tools um, to know when things are going wrong, internally um, we can we can find ourselves perhaps quite unexpectedly find ourselves welling up with bitterness welling up with resentment and I know that certainly the tradition I come from um, uh, I know yeah so many people who work as the pastors of churches and you listen to them talk about their communities and they, they clearly have resentment and contempt. They don't trust their communities. So that, that their desire to serve is, is there and their desire to, to love is there. But um, without having the tools to really know what is going on for them internally, suddenly you see these, these really dark things welling up inside of them because of that. Eva, you wanted to say something? forced to face these questions recently um i really appreciate the questions that you're raising this morning and the angle that you're taking rod but um for me was helpful looking at carl jung and his exploration into the unconscious because that really is one of the underlying aspects of our psyche i think when we start to understand that we are complex individuals and that we need to integrate aspects of the things that we're not aware of within us and the things that we are aware of or the conscious self, um, I, f- I feel that that leads to greater integration. Um, so it's not just kind of like a spirituality that is divorced from the self, which is more about ascent, the higher things, but I think when we get more in touch with our soulful aspects of who we are, the things that ground us to life, to this earth... Um, for me, that leads to greater wholeness, I think, and I've been exploring more about what it means to be whole, and I think that's what we're sort of um, looking into now. So it's integrating the aspects of our personality, our psyche, our whole selves with our spirituality, I think, leads to freedom. Yeah, and I think, I guess, this stuff needs to be modelled for us in our, the, the people around us, that people that are older than us are in our families, to have a sense that, um, it is okay um, to look inside. It is okay to and important to spend times of solitude 
Um, I think Shane will touch on this next week, so I don't want to steal his thunder, but um, a lot of the stuff that we've been reading on this is really focused on silence and um, solitude and prayer and the fact that these are the things that are most squeezed out by our culture and the way that we live and that these things, solitude and prayer, are... um, the most important things for staying connected to self and to, I guess, uncovering these wells of, of envy or resentment or bitterness that we perhaps weren't aware of because of the busyness of our lives or because of our pursuit of doing the right thing. Um, and I, I often think about the passage where Jesus... Yeah, I'll come over. Um, the passage where Jesus is... I think it's in, the, even in the, yeah, it's the first chapter of Mark, where he just, he's um, healing people, he spends the whole night healing people, and then he gets up early in the morning and goes off to a solitary place to pray, and at the end of that, his disciples find him, and he says, okay, we have to move on now. Um, it's that incredible model, I guess, of withdrawing and reconnecting and moving on, and you could say, oh, he's praying, so he's He's actually focusing on God, not on connecting to self. But again, I think it's both. It's both. The act of prayer is to connect with God and to connect with self. Sorry, Michael. Um, I think the idea of self, it's a little bit problematic for me. I'm just thinking about how we've had thousands and thousands of years of culture overlaid into our you know into us so how do we know that something that we think will do is us you know it could come from a centuries-old belief that someone has spuriously believed and then they passed that on to my grandfather and they decided that was a good idea and you know like how do you know that what you do and I mean it's amazing to me that God can connect with us when there's all these layers of just like and, and, you know, being critical about where those things come from, you know, that that influences us as a self, as a person, that it's not just, we're not just totally individual. There's just, like, all these layers. Like, I don't know, it just seems strange to have that concept of self when that exists. Like, I don't know. Um, yeah, well, I guess we'll look at this a lot more in the, in the coming weeks, but just that issue of the, the distrust of self... Um, and that, of course, of course, self is, it, the self is complex. Of course, as fallen beings, um, there is deception. And uh, I guess the the point is that in encountering God, as as we heard in that book before, in encountering God, um, it enables us to, I guess, to. Um, to expose what is false, what is inauthentic in the self. So that that is um, the point of the quotes that we read before, that it is in knowing God that we know self, but that knowing God does not involve a neglect of the self or an ignoring of the self. I guess that's the distinction I'm trying to create. Not that we suddenly, I'm saying, we trust every aspect of the self, we trust every aspect of what we understand ourselves to be, but it's more that that knowing God does not equal neglecting the self. Knowing God involves 
knowing the self, and both things go together. Uh, we'll just have a couple more people. Just in relation to the more of God, more of me question that you asked before, um, just the word capacity came to mind. And I think for me, my experience with like praying and um, I don't know, yeah, I guess seeking God, I feel like there's always going to be for me that element of like distrust of myself. But the more I give myself or like the more I seek God on um on real events or real issues that I have to deal with in my life, whatever those are, however, however small or big, but very much connected to the life that I'm living day to day. The more I kind of seek God on those and make decisions towards him, the more kind of resource or heart space I had this, that like I have, I feel like I have access to. When you were filling up those glasses, I had this idea of like this balloon that just kind of kept getting bigger, but didn't explode. Um, <laughs> but that kind of idea that like we'll always have like our own, we'll always kind of have our own water and our own glass. But when we start to open ourselves up to God, he makes that bigger. Um, just a couple of things in response to what um, was said about like distrust of the self and where we get all these aspects of ourselves from that comes from you know history and culture and all that. I just wanted to say that I think the self isn't some sort of static, uniform thing. Like we construct our identities in relation to other people. It's a combination of what we've got from genetics and what comes down to us through culture. And every day we're kind of someone new because we change and that's part of who God made us to be in time, in life, in relationship. Um, so yeah, I guess we should always be questioning ourselves and changing, but the self, whatever it happens to be in any particular moment, is where we start from. It has to be an element in the connection we have to God because it's a connection, it's got two sides and we can't know ourselves, well we can't know God without knowing who we are in relationship to him it's like a mountain climber you know you're anchoring yourself to a rock face and then you find that the rope isn't connected to your own belt you need both sides of the equation so it's not yeah you can't know God without knowing yourself because you need a point of origin to have a connection or any sense of direction Having opened up a can of worms, I'm not going to close it. But um, <laughs> I guess one simple thing for me um, is just uh, what, what we have talked about before and the, the parameters of gratitude and the parameters of joy and the parameters of um, love, that, that these, despite the... Um, complexity of the self that these are things that we can always check in with with ourselves if we feel like our lives are characterized if we feel gratitude wells welling up in us if we feel love welling up in in us then um then we know that um what we are doing we're doing for um, the right reasons um if we feel that it is just bitterness and resentment and envy then we know that something is going wrong in the self and i guess giving ourselves permission to, to check in with that 
that stuff is um, the heart of what I'm trying to talk about today. Um, let's finish then. Um, this is relating, I guess, to what Ronnie was saying. Um, a T.S. Eliot quote, the last temptation that is the greatest treason is to do the right thing for the wrong reason. And that, um, yeah, if, if we're not plugged in to our motivations, what's driving us, knowing ourselves enough to at least know what's driving us, then um, there is always that danger. And that is a danger that I've always faced in my life. I get to. And um, a C.S. Lewis, a quote from the, <laughs> the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. I've found in my life that um, at unhealthy times, I, I become invisible. Um, I spend so much time trying to be what other people need me to be that I become invisible to them and perhaps to myself. Um, and I think if we, when we, if we know God and we know ourselves, then I think we become bigger people. We become more distinct, not less. And if you look at Jesus, a Jesus who turned over the tables of the money changers and drove them out of the temple, who said, get behind me, Satan, to Peter, who promised persecution to his followers, not as a test or a way to punish the flesh. He promised persecution because it's um, a natural and inevitable result of being good but not safe like Jesus. Um, so this is what I want to be. This is what I think knowing yourself, being knowing God and knowing yourself, it makes you a person that is good but not necessarily safe because you are following God. You're a person of love but you're not necessarily conforming or predictable or invisible because of your desire to please. And I think that would be a wonderful way for our community to be, to be good but not safe. Um, so that is, that's my final prayer for us, that we become able to be true to our distinctness, to our particularity. Uh, we become, have the courage to be true to who we are in a way that makes us good but not safe. And um, as we turn to communion, we're going to perform a little miracle, the miracle of the cracker. So if you look at your table... All of you at your tables have a generic cracker. All these crackers are identical in shape and form. But you are now going to perform a miracle to turn your cracker into diversity and distinctness. So take your second knuckle, press it down on the center of the cracker. And lo and behold, cracker shapes never before witnessed in the history of humankind. Oh, you did three. Great. <laughs> there, the superpower. So as you share, as you share communion, pick up one of the pieces of cracker. It may be a small piece, but it will be distinct. And re reflect on the uniqueness, the particularity of the way that you have been created by God. And celebrate the fact that in knowing God, you do not lose this distinctness and particularity, but gain more overtones, more harmonies of the beauty that you are. Hello, sweetheart.
that was timely. Um, yeah, so eat and drink. I'm going to pray. Loving God, I thank you that you have made us all unique and particular. And I thank you that in knowing you, in being filled with you, we do not lose this uniqueness and particularity, but, but become more distinct. And I pray that we might be a community which is not driven by fear, that doesn't just desire to please others, but desires to love others. And that we might not be a community of, of conformity or invisibility, but that we might be a community where we are good, but not safe. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.